This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. In war zones like Iraq and Afghanistan, locals who work for the U.S. as interpreters, for example, can be in just as much danger as soldiers. And those in most danger are often admitted to the U.S. under special visas. But some run into another roadblock when they arrive. It can be tough to pay for college. Well, a bill in the state legislature would give these workers and other refugees who resettle here a break on college tuition. I am joined by Matham al a former interpreter for the U.S. military in Iraq. He's now a nurse at the University of Colorado Hospital. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you for having me. And we have on the line an American-born veteran who's also lobbying for this bill, Travis Weiner. Travis, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. So, Matham, tell me about a day in your life as an interpreter for U.S. Armed Forces in Iraq. So most of my work was with military transitional teams, those sorts of highly specialized teams that worked closely with Iraqi army units. and uh, Trying to them, train them up? Train them up to become fully operational. Um, so um, a typical day for me was basically uh, going with the team lead uh, to the Iraqi army unit and meeting with their commander and seeing what the rest of the day is, look li- uh, is looking like. Uh, we also did a lot of training with these soldiers. So we all, we had our own training site, um, and these soldiers actually had uh, the old T-72 tanks that uh, the old Iraqi army had, and that's what they have right now. Um, and we did a lot of work inside the wire, as we call it, um, basically being on base. And we did a lot of work outside the wire as well, um, basically going out to local areas that are around us, meeting with locals in our areas of operations, fostering good relationships and inspecting checkpoints. And some of my work was actually with um, active units, units that were actively uh, outside the wire 24-7. And so you were interacting with civilians in that capacity. And I have to think about the the specialized language it would require for you to be able to interpret for uh, American soldiers speaking to Iraqi soldiers and the kind of language that requires weaponry, things like that. Definitely. Um, as we all know, the Army likes to use a lot of acronyms, so we had to learn all of that. How did you become an interpreter? Um, so basically, I was going to school in northern Iraq in Mosul to become a veterinarian, and a sectarian violence escalated, and I decided to leave that town and come to Baghdad because um, it was getting really dangerous for people that were from out of town. Um, me and my best friend decided to do something with our lives, and we thought it would be a great opportunity for us to contribute to our home country and contribute to the U.S. mission by working as interpreters. We were both interested in the uh, English language. So uh, one day we walked to the international zone and uh, applied with the company that uh, at the time had the contract to supply the United States Army with uh, interpreters. And your English, I gather, was at a very high level and, and you could do this work. Yes. Yeah, so um, we were able, I at least I was able to speak it and write it very well, but I, um, I was not trained well to comprehend it or speak it at the level I'm speaking at right now. So this was trial by fire to some extent. Yes, definitely. Okay. Um, Did you think, gosh, I might be putting myself in danger by doing this, by allying myself to some extent with the Americans? 
Yes, of course. Uh, it was not an easy job. Our, our, we were um, in in danger on and off the job. Uh, this included our work alongside soldiers. Whatever they were exposed to, we were exposed to. And it was even more dangerous sometimes just traveling that route, going home uh, to visit our families after months of being on base. Um, it, yes, it was dangerous, but it was work that had to be done. And it was steady work that paid. Yes, in definitely. a place that was crumbling around you to some extent. Definitely, mm-hmm. it was steady work that paid, but uh, it did not pay as well as you would think it pays. It, it's actually it, we were getting paid peanuts in U.S. standards. Really? Yeah. Like how much? So uh, my last paycheck after working continuously for three years was around fourteen hundred dollars a month. Do you know how that compares to the soldiers you were interpreting for? Um, I'm not sure. Not sure. Okay. At this point, I'd like to bring in U.S. Army veteran Travis Winder. He's now a law student at CU in Boulder and has lobbied, along with Matham, for this in-state tuition bill for these uh, very special refugees who have relocated to Colorado. Travis, you did two tours in Iraq between 2006 and 2008, and I understand... You had an interpreter when you were there, someone who made a real impression on you. Tell me about uh, this interpreter. Sure. So our interpreter uh, was named KJ, Kadam Jessup. And, um, you know, like so many others, like Matham, uh, he was a member of the platoon, um, carried a weapon, um, you know, ate, slept alongside us. And um, essentially with counterinsurgency is absolutely critical to the mission. And every combat unit and veteran understands that. Um, he made such an impression, in fact, that my lieutenant, um, the second tour, who was now a battalion staff officer, uh, found KJ, uh, who the year before we had left in Baghdad, we were in a different area this time, and brought him uh, down to our base uh, to be his uh, personal interpreter um, to go out and do civil affairs type missions. Um, unfortunately, um, about a year or two after we left that deployment, um, KJ was ultimately killed um, oh in a vehicle borne up. Uh, improvised explosive device, um, and he was in the process of trying to get an SIV visa that had been delayed a number of times uh, for bureaucratic reasons. Yeah, let's just say that the first obstacle to clear is to get this special visa to be able to come to the United States, and then as we're discussing here, uh, being able to get an education when you land. Uh, It sounds like the bonds are really strong between these units and their interpreter, in other words. They are very much so. And, you know, this is an issue that's getting more press now, and I'm happy for that. But organizations like mine, Veterans for American Ideals, organizations like No One Left Behind, and frankly, uh, a number of veterans, uh, folks in the Pentagon and the special operations community understand that the bonds, I mean, sure, there's emotional bonds, no question. Uh, it's also essential to the mission. You know, from my perspective and from my group's perspective, these individuals um, served um, their country and our country in the exact same way uh, went above and beyond um, that many combat veterans do. And the problem is that as a nation, um, we do not um, afford them uh, near, nearly the benefits that we afford our own veterans. And we need to change that by educating folks, and we need to change that through the legal process as well. And so what you're hoping for, what is in this bill, is the idea of granting these folks in-state tuition basically as soon as they arrive, as opposed to having to wait to establish residency. That can take a year. And what did that look like for you? How might you have benefited, Matham, from uh, a, a law like this? So... Um 
actually, instead of having to wait a whole year in order to start my education and uh, having to uh, delay my progress, uh, I could have been a fully contributing member of my new community. Um, uh, personally, it was just too expensive to pay the full freight tuition. It was. Um, as refugees and immigrants, we uh, lose uh, our social, uh, financial, and educational capital, and we come here and we're faced with other systemic hurdles. Um, this system is not designed for people people like us. Um, there are no other options for us other than to pay out-of-state tuition uh, or wait that whole year. And for some of us, it's even longer than a year. For instance, for me, uh, I fulfilled that one residency requirement around the summer and spring semester, and the classes I wanted to take were not available then. Ah, I see. So you had to wait even longer to get into the classes it, you wanted to take. It was a total of two years, yes. Well, I want to say that this bill we're discussing passed the state Senate unanimously and will soon be considered in the House. And again, it would give uh, refugees like yourself and a, a bit of a broader community of refugees in-state tuition as soon as they arrive. Uh, and we reached out to a group that helped write this legislation. Um, it appears that this might apply to about 3,500 people over the last two years. It's the number of refugees who've settled in Colorado. But a lot of them are young children. Uh, so analysts at the legislature predict this won't cost the state much because they think, using their words, only a minimal number of people will use it. Uh, with that in mind, Travis, is this a big enough problem to need legislative help? You know, I it's interesting, Ryan. I would say, you know, yes, it's true uh, that the fiscal impact is minimum. But I would ask folks, you know, when, when this state and states in this country and as a nation as a whole, frankly, when we're debating, um, you know, veterans legislation, um, there's almost unanimous support. In other words, in the state of Colorado, you know, we don't say, well, how much is it going to cost the state if we allow U.S. military veterans to receive in-state tuition? It's just something that happens almost unanimously. And I think the point is that individuals such as Mason, these SIVs, they are veterans, and the only difference between them and myself is where they were born. And so, you know, we just want the exact same um, for them as for us. And frankly, this is just the start of a larger effort. Um, I'm not going to rest uh, until individuals like Matham, who have done uh, so much for this country, are afforded the same benefits that I'm afforded. And I'm not the only veteran that feels this way. This is the start uh, of a much larger effort to uh, to allow individuals like Matham to avail themselves of the same ben benefits, excuse me, that I could. I got in-state tuition when I came to uh, Colorado. It helped tremendously. I saved $10,000 in my first year of law school. There's absolutely no reason why individuals uh, from the Middle East who helped and were affected by our military operations there cannot afford themselves in the same benefits. Yeah, let me say that out-of-state tuition in some cases can be twice as much as in-state tuition. So these are uh, real dollars for folks. Matham, tell me more about what precipitated uh, your SIV uh, visa, so this, this special sort of visa that allows you to relocate to the United States. Why did Iraq become untenable? So um, because of the work that we did with the United States government, we were targeted by insurgents. Uh, there were a lot of factions at war, at war uh, uh, in Iraq and still are. 
um, that were targeting the conduit between the United States military and the rest of the population. The, 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 the messenger, the middleman, that's you. Definitely. Uh, I mean, in, in, in many instances, interpreters served as cultural advisors, diplomats, informant handlers, intelligence network operators, soldiers, and peacekeepers. So if you um, take out the interpreter, you're effectively taking out someone who can do all of these jobs and you're cutting the link between the United States government and uh, the work that they're trying to do. So how closely did you feel that threat? So um, I worked in an area that was not too far from my home, and there were a few instances when I had to frequent uh, a few hospitals, actually, with, with uh, the platoon I worked with, where my uh, I had family members that worked there. Um, I locked eyes with people that recognized me instantly, and that was a scary thought, because if these people, uh, I, I wasn't worried about these people, for instance, but I was worried they might tell the wrong people. Uh, if the wrong person got a hold of that information, people would come after me and after my family if they couldn't fi- find me. You're saying it's a small world where you were, and people in your community saw you working with the American forces, yes. and that left you vulnerable. Yes, that left me vulnerable, and that left a lot of other people vulnerable. Uh, others have uh, experienced a more direct threat where, um, you know, the bad guys were coming to their homes looking for them, chase them out of their towns. There are a lot of Iraqi interpreters and other contractors that are actually still yet to come because the SIV program was suspended as of 2014. And it's also true that this can put families in jeopardy. Definitely. Um, We live in smaller cosms than we do here, and uh, word of mouth just spreads easily. uh, And things can extrapolate to um, a point where it becomes, like you said, unattainable to uh, live there uh, in, in safety. And Travis, I, I imagine it's it's your interpreter who you keep in mind as you pursue this path, trying to get the in-state tuition for these special immigrant visa recipients. You know, it certainly is. But, uh, you know, there's so many others like him, um, you know, folks that uh, people don't know the names of that suffered the same fate. You know, and again, Ryan, I keep coming back to this larger theme, you know, after Vietnam, we as a nation recognized our obligation, our duty to help not only those who interpreted for us, but to help those individuals who, uh, you know, could no longer live there, a country that was destroyed. We took in hundreds of thousands of refugees. These are fundamental American values. At one time, they were nonpartisan. Uh, myself, my group, and others, we aim to try to convince folks uh, that they can be nonpartisan again. And, you know, we you know, we really have a reputation as a country on the line here and how we treat uh, these individuals. Obviously, it's not just about uh, resettlement and special immigrant visas. It's about when you drop someone into the middle of a country, you know, you have to provide uh, significant support for them to get back on their feet. It's the same thing that we would want if the situation were reversed. That's Travis Weiner. He's a U.S. Army veteran who's now a law student at the University of Colorado. Weiner also works for the nonprofit Veterans for American Ideals, which focuses on protections for those who worked with American forces overseas. And we heard from Matham Al-Shadud. He was an interpreter for the U.S. military in Iraq and is now a nurse at the University of Colorado Hospital. When they unveiled the Olympic uniforms for Team USA this year, a Colorado glove maker did a double take. 
He saw what looked like his design on athletes' hands, except Ralph Lauren got the credit. Here to talk about the controversy is Brad Peterson of Astis Mittens. Hi, Brad. Hello, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Sure. What was your reaction when you saw Ralph Lauren's tasseled leather gloves? Uh, well, I was a little shocked. I was uh, very disappointed just because um, we had talked to them in the past, uh, and we had talked to them even as far as um, there's been small talk about partnering, and then, and then you know, it went silent. But it was always a dream of mine to be able to do something like this. It just to do the 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 Olympic gloves. It just sort of made like sense to me. I thought it would be a great look. And then to see it kind of come out and it wasn't mine, it was more just disappointment, I guess. What was the nature of the contact with Ralph Lauren's people? Um, it was it was a little more casual than like um, deep, you know, uh, we didn't sign anything. So I can't say they ripped us off completely. They, um, they approached us a few years ago and really liked what we were doing. We have these big, for people that don't know, we make big leather gauntlet mittens with beadwork on them. And if you've watched the opening ceremony, if you watched any of the uh, news that has shown the gloves, um, that's sort of our style and that's what we're known for. So um, uh, the context was they liked that and then they, um, they, they asked for them. So we sent them a few pairs and I even emailed them saying, Hey, it would be great to do something like this for the, uh, opening ceremony of the Olympics. Uh, and they said they were starting their, their planning process. But, um, you know, we didn't, we didn't go into too much detail. And then right. I had gotten calls, I had gotten calls about, you know, where do you, where do you make your stuff and other things? And, and uh, it was Ralph Lauren kind of quizzing us and then, and then to sort of see it come out. That's where I was uh, more disappointed than anything. A spokesperson for Ralph Lauren told us the company had always conceived of creating a Western-inspired glove and explored manufacturing relationships with a number of different vendors. Uh, continuing the quote here, the American West has been a well-established source of inspiration for us. Uh, and they maintain the gloves are not modeled after Astis. On your company's website, it says that your design was inspired by a pair of Cree mittens you'd gotten from a friend. He'd had them made by a Cree artisan, and uh, they sure. were the they were the best gloves you'd ever owned. I, I understand. <laughs> they were. They. I mean, so I mean, we didn't invent the wheel. Um, yeah. And there's definitely been this style, this long cuff mitten style that's been out there, but it's it's hard to find. There's no one really doing it, and so yeah, uh, probably. I don't know. It's it's been a long time now, but maybe 20 years. Uh, actually, maybe longer. Uh, a friend of mine was was canoeing across northern Canada, and he traded a Swiss Army knife for a Cree Indian to make him a pair of mittens, and they were sort of like what we do now. So we drew inspiration as well. Um, and and then we it, it, I used he gave them to me, and I used them for. Uh, over a decade, uh, they had no lining. I put lining in them, and I patched the patched the leather as it went along. And then, and then my sister's dog ate them, and so okay. I needed to make something because <laughs> because I couldn't I, I couldn't find them anywhere. So I so I started making them, and that's how Astis, uh, which means mitten in Cree, was born. So yeah, we we drew inspiration from places too, but uh, I mean I think the difference is is 
that uh, they kind of talked to us about it, and that's that's where I was disappointed. Um, and uh, you know, so well, j- just but, to bring uh, this thinking through, did, did did you ever try to reach the Cree woman who had made you the gloves with the idea of giving her some of the profits or something? <laughs> Yeah, but it was, I mean, that's really difficult because um, it's it's way up north in Canada and I didn't know the lady um, and and so I, I couldn't find them okay. and I couldn't find them anywhere. So that's where I started making them. Um, Are you going to reach out so, to Ralph Lauren? Is there some legal action here or is this just sort of hurt feelings I, and that's where it, it stands? I mean, I think it's just hurt feelings, to be honest. I'm not too, I mean... To be honest, the Olympics isn't about this. It's not about, you know, what the athletes wear. I probably shouldn't say it as a as a glove manufacturer, but it's really not about what the athletes wear. It's 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 more more about the sport and bringing the world together, you know, competing with in these sports. I mean, what the athletes are doing is is incredible and that's where like the focus should be. So I I kind of almost feel bad that like that this has been like, there, I mean, obviously it's a small spotlight, but it's, there's been a little spotlight on us uh, on controversy during the Olympics, but no. I don't think it's taken away from any of the, the athletes, but uh, Ralph you... Lauren just did, has not reached out to me until just, um, you know, 20 minutes before I went on the air with you, they knew we were talking um, and just said, you know, tried to apologize, uh, which was very kind of them, I guess. Um, so, I think it's I think it's more hurt feelings. If Ralph Lauren has different feelings, or if somebody else does, uh, that's that's fine. But that's not really kind of who I am. Um, okay, so they they just reached out to you before this interview. Interesting. I guess that was after yeah, we reached interview. out to them, and they were asking we, they were asking me why I was uh, contacting the media, and I I just told them like, no, I have not contacted any media. Media has contacted me. That's probably why. You know, that's that's where the story is, is it's so similar that media has been contacting me and me ski magazine and contacted me outside magazine, um, the Denver Post, obviously Colorado Public Radio. All right. I joked with my wife. I joked with my wife after uh, I got off. I'm a fan of. Colorado Public Radio. I appreciate I, that. I, we're running out of time, Brad, and and so I'm going to sure, have to sure. cut off your kindness. What a rude thing to do when someone's giving you a <laughs> no, compliment. No. Brad, Thank you, Ryan. Th- thanks for sharing this, and uh, let us know if there are any updates uh, beyond that. Brad Peterson okay. of Denver is co-founder yeah. of Astis Mittens. We talked about the similarity between the gloves he makes and the ones Ralph Lauren designed for Team USA at the 2018 Games. <music> The U.S. Mint in Denver releases a new dollar coin today, and it features a man who's been called the greatest American Olympian of all time. Jim Thorpe, a member of the Sac and Fox Nation, won gold medals in the decathlon and pentathlon in 1912. Thorpe went on to play pro football, helping form the NFL. He also had pro basketball and baseball careers. And to learn more about him, I'm joined by David Bledsoe with the Denver-based American Indian College Fund. And David, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. For nearly a decade, the dollar coin has featured various American Indians or Indian nations. Uh, What does this new coin with Jim Thorpe look like, first off? Uh, of course, has his uh, face, his portrait, and shows him hurtling, uh, and also features his uh, Sac and Fox name, which is Watho Hook, which means bright star. 
bright star. Uh, so that's on the side that's generally considered tails. The head side maintains an image of Sacagawea, I think, carrying her infant son. Yes. Okay. So as I mentioned, uh, he was a member of the Sac and Fox Nation, spent his early years thus in the Oklahoma Territory, where the U.S. had relegated the tribe. Uh, Then he went to the Carlisle Indian Industrial School, a boarding school in Pennsylvania. This was after his mother had died, soon after his father dies, making him an orphan as a teen. But I understand it's really at Carlisle that his athletic talents were discovered. Tell me about that. Yeah, he was there for a few years, and just um, the story goes that basically in 1907 he was walking by um, some track and field athletes that were doing high jumps, and just in his street clothes easily topped the uh, <laughs> five foot nine bar that uh, all the athletes were unsuccessfully trying at. Wow. And uh, the famous uh, football coach, uh, Glenn Scooby, Pop Warner. Um, uh, oh, yes. For whom Pop Warner football is named. Right, right. He uh, immediately <laughs> basically brought him into uh, track and field athletics. And then a couple of years after that, he um, uh, w- was a little hesitant to bring him into football, but when he saw uh, Jim Thorpe's prowess, he's put him onto the football team for Carlisle Indians. Now, I think Thorpe was about 5'8", so not giant in stature. Right, right. Okay. Uh, and with this idea that he seems to have a knack for things he doesn't necessarily have practice in, before the 1912 Olympic trials, he'd never thrown a javelin or pole vaulted. Is, is that right? Right. He, um, if you look at the quotes and people that talk about that either competed against him or saw him uh, competing both in track and field and football and things like that, there's this remarks that you hear over and over again about his just natural athleticism. So, uh, of course, he was involved in track and field, but didn't start training until the spring before the summer games oh in 1912. <laughs> and there were several of the of the um, uh, the events that he participated in, both in the pentathlon and decathlon, that he had never done before. So um, even though he was successful in eight of the 15 events in those two sports and, and won the gold medal, um, some of them were brand new to him. Wow. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about Jim Thorpe, who has been called the greatest American Olympian of all time. Thorpe uh, is on a new coin, a dollar coin, released today by the U.S. Mint in Denver, and we're getting a sense for Thorpe's life uh, with David Bledsoe, who's from the Denver-based American Indian College Fund. Uh, I have heard his uh, Olympic performance described as epic. Yes. <laughs> wow. Uh, and I suppose that is in part because so many of these activities were, were new to him. Uh, on the second day of competition, Thorpe couldn't find his shoes. And so he competed in a mismatched pair. Yeah, supposedly some that he had found in the trash. Okay. <laughs> Just because, uh, I guess he was so popular that maybe someone had wanted a trophy or souvenir and, and grabbed his shoes. But he uh, there are some of those strange things along his journey, both in the Olympics and his professional sports career, where you know he played in shoes that were mismatched. He <laughs> When the odds are against him, he still succeeds. Right. The then king of Sweden, where the games were taking place, gave Thorpe his gold medals during the 1912 awards ceremony. What did the king say to him as he placed the medals around Thorpe's neck? He said, you, sir, are the world's greatest athlete. And that's actually on his um, his uh, tombstone, um, 
where he's laid to rest. And also he was presented a medal by um, the last czar, Nicholas II, uh, oh for the other sport that he uh, gold medaled in. Um, and it's it's interesting to think about some of these tremendous remarks, but he actually played against uh, Dwight Eisenhower uh, on the Army football team. Okay. And then 50 years later, Dwight Eisenhower was remarking on what a tremendous you know, natural athlete he was in a speech. So you see that over and over again. When he returned from the games uh, in 1912, he played in an, uh, an amateur athletic competition in New York, and Martin Sheridan, who was a five-time gold medal winner, had almost the same con- comments. He said, you were the finest athlete I've ever seen. So you see it over and over again, people kind of remarking on just how natural his ability was and not in just one sport as we said in football in basketball in baseball in track i want to note that the international olympic committee though stripped him for a a good period of time of his medals yes uh, after um the games uh there was um some contest brought up about his amateurism at that time uh, in the olympics no uh, professional athletes were allowed to play and they had said that there were two very small instances where he might have been paid, uh, of, you know, nothing like a contract like we would see today, but okay. a small amount of money to participate in sporting competitions. Um, however, if you look at the public comments of the time, that was later seen really as a, a you know, a racial attack, uh, uh, evident of, of racism towards him as a Native American. Uh, and that's one of the reasons that the medals were reinstated. Uh, 30 years after his death in 1983. Right. He did not leave to see the reinstatement. He did not. No. I want to note that he was a ballroom dancer, too. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, (laughs) do does one guy have to have all the talent? Could could you send a little my way? Uh, Thorpe is often referred to as a modern athlete. What what do you think that means? Uh, I think it has to do with just the number of different areas in which he excelled. Um, not only was he an Olympian, he was playing professional baseball and football at the same time. Uh, you look, go back to, um, to Bo, you know, Bo knows from the Nike campaign, sure. athletes playing multiple sports that was considered, uh, you know, also the, the also the dawn of kind of professional athleticism. Uh, when he was playing with the Carlisle Indians, that was the very beginning of the NCAA. Uh, he was a founding member and the very first president of the APFA, the American um, Professional Football Association, which was the first name of the NFL. That's what it was called for the first two years. So that was kind of the move into professionalism from, you know, kind of regional and, and exhibit leagues that would travel and just kind of showcase their ability. Do you think Thorpe was aware of the racism he encountered and what did he make of it? Uh, a lot of his thoughts weren't known. Um, the as you talked about him being in a uh, you know kind of a very vulnerable place when he first came to the Carlisle Indian School you know being orphaned his brother had also died within that period of time and oh sports were kind of a refuge for him you know he found this way to connect with people to show his excellence and so you know that's that was what was most important to him about you know performing and being a part of all of these different endeavors how did you get interested in him, David Bledsoe? Uh, just through my work with the American Indian College Fund, um, there's so many interesting aspects of 
uh, early Native American experience here uh, as our country moved west. Let me say, he was the first American Indian to medal at the Olympics. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Yes, that is correct. And, you know, he's obviously an exceptional athlete, but also kind of a barrier breaker in himself, you know, as far as winning the Olympic medals, uh, being a part of professional sports, you know, being the first president of the, the NFL or the APFA, uh, and just kind of a, a role model for a lot of American Indians who at that time did not have, you know, when he participated in the Olympics, they did not have the right to vote. Um, and there was, you know, pretty rampant racism. If you look at his performances, even at the college and professional level, a lot of it was uh, framed as whites versus Indians or Redskins versus, um, you know, uh, uh, citizens of our country. So there was a lot of that that continued through his career. He didn't speak out about it, but just the fact that he participated and really found excellence uh, in all of those sports, that's really what people look to when they see um, who Jim Thorpe was. My goodness, a lot going on on that dollar yeah. coin, a lot of story behind it. David, thank you for being with us. You're welcome. David Bledsoe is with the Denver-based American Indian College Fund, and his organization is celebrating this new coin that features Olympian Jim Thorpe. The U.S. Mint in Denver releases it today. We'll post a photo to CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. In her webcomics, Emma Oosterhaus tells the stories of LGBTQ youth, how they mustered up the courage to come out. The CU Boulder grad grew up in Colorado Springs and was recently awarded the prestigious Marshall Scholarship, which she will use to get her master's in comics and graphic novels at the University of Dundee in Scotland. And Emma, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. I think if I knew that there was a master's in comics and graphic novels, my life might have <laughs> taken a very different turn. <laughs> I, I want to start with with your coming out experience. Um, does any of, of the work you do relate to the difficulty of that for you? Yeah, it definitely echoes through almost everything I do. And, and you know, my coming out experience is, is the only one that I really obviously have experienced. Um, and so it's it's the most important to me and it sort of resonates through everything that I draw and everything that I write. Yeah, for sure. Tell me more about uh, how it was to come out for you. Well, it's a constant experience. There was never one, you know, coming out moment. Uh, it was a, a process of telling, you know, everyone in my life. Um, I told my friends first and they were all really supportive. And then you know, I told my family and my family told the rest of my family. Um, and I eventually came out on Facebook uh, a couple years after I knew that I was queer. And that was met with pretty positive reception for the most part. So I definitely didn't have nearly as difficult a time as, you know, some other people that I know. But but I, yeah. I, it's interesting that you describe it as almost like this rolling process. Yeah, absolutely. Um, different communities to tell. And uh, goodness, I I can't fathom what it would be to come out on Facebook and have people being able to comment on that and leave the comments there. <laughs> yeah, most of them were, were really great and really supportive. Uh, so this Marshall Scholarship you landed was developed by the British Parliament as a way to thank the U.S. for assisting in rebuilding Europe after World War II. Uh, it's really competitive. Only about 40 people get it each year. Yeah. Uh, tell me about learning you'd won this. 
Um, so I got the call when I was in the Houston airport about 30 minutes before my flight left to, to come back to Denver after the interview. And I was sitting there with my dad. Um, my dad came with me. And um, my phone rang. And it was an unknown number. And I'm like, I don't know if I want to answer this. And he sort of looked over and he was like, you should answer that. Um, and so I picked up and they were like, congratulations, you're a Marshall Scholar. And my dad was taking pictures <laughs> as I was on the phone with them to sort of record the moment. He knew yeah, it, was, it was it was he, unbelievable. He knew it was them. I love that. He had some premonition. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but you, you don't have much formal art training, I understand. No, I don't. Huh. And yet you've been drawing for a very long time, since you could hold a crayon, I, I, I gather. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about the earliest things you drew. The earliest thing I can remember drawing is a picture of my mom, and she looked like a potato with lots and lots of legs. <laughs> with lots of legs? it was beautiful. <laughs> Far too many legs. I see. Your, your mother, the centipede, in other words. Yes. <laughs> when did you know you wanted to pursue comics as a profession? I would say maybe a year after I started writing Alphabet Soup. Um, it sort of transformed from a hobby into something that I was really enjoying and I could see the impact that it was having on people. And at some point I thought, hey, I could do this for a living. I could, you know, reach a lot more people than I'm reaching now and I could do some good with my art. Okay, so Alphabet Soup is your webcomic. And yes. it has largely focused on people's coming out experiences. Uh, you you s solicit stories uh, from folks and then illustrate them. Where yeah. did the idea for that come from? I was working at an internship at Inside Out Youth Services, which is a queer youth group in Colorado Springs. And I was going to do a project. And I knew I wanted to do something art-related, but I didn't know exactly what... Um, and I was sort of getting interested in comics at the time. But I didn't want to do just, you know, a webcomic, like a fictional story or whatever that would update once a week because I figured that probably wouldn't interest very many people. And I really wanted to do something that would engage the youth that I was working with. And so I decided it would be a great idea if, you know, I got them to give me their stories and I would draw them. And you would draw them. And I understand that it's it's really moving for folks to see their coming out stories illustrated. I mean, this has resulted, yeah. this has resulted in, in people just breaking out in tears. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's really, it's an emotional process and it's a really rewarding one. Do you remember the first story you told? The, yeah, the first story I told was actually my best friend's uh, coming out story to her, some of her other friends. And they were just having a conversation. And um, in the middle of it, she sort of slipped in a little, oh, by the way, uh, I'm bi. And there was some silence and then, like, confetti. And, and it was sort of awkward and funny. And um, and it went fine. And it was just, you know, a funny little moment. And that was the first page I ever posted. What's the um, strangest or maybe hardest coming out experience you've, you've illustrated? Hmm. I mean, unfortunately, a lot of them, you know, a, a lot of these kids are not really met with, with great reception from either their their parents or their communities or their schools or their friends. And so those are probably the hardest when, you know, I get a story that says I came out to my mom yesterday and she kicked me out of the house. How do you illustrate that? 
just a lot of, you know, talking back and forth with this person and saying, how do you want me to go about, you know, writing this? And do you want it to end sort of on a hopeful note? Or do you just want to, you know, staying true to the sort of emotional feeling that that they're having at this moment and, and at the time of the story is really important. So just communication. You moved Alphabet Soup eventually to Tumblr, where it has gained quite the audience. Uh, I understand, though, that you've, at least for now, put on hold the like new submissions, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that's just because I have so many in the queue that I still have to illustrate. Um, I was getting like panicked messages from readers being like, oh, no, Alphabet Soup is ending. And I'm like, no, it's not. I still have at least like 200 stories that I'm going to be illustrating. I'm not going anywhere. You are also working on a graphic novel that has to take up some time. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about it. So the idea is um, my my protagonist, who is a a college junior, um, she wakes up one morning and she sees sort of the, it's this little like goblin sort of thing is what I'm calling it. Okay. And it starts following her around um, and becomes more and more corporeal as she nears the first anniversary of a traumatic event. It's the uh, the physical manifestation of that trauma coming back and, you know, affecting her life. Um, and so I'm, you know, the, the focus of the story is on the cyclical nature of trauma and how recovery is not linear. It's almost as if grief has taken a literal shape. Yeah, exactly. Huh. Uh, where did the idea for that come from? It It definitely came from you know, my own recovery process with, with various traumas that I've experienced um, and just, you know, the way that I, I didn't expect to be dealing with them for so long and they come back every year. Um, was this the loss and, of a friend or something? Uh, this was uh, a few bad relationships that I'd had. And the grief that can come along with those. and Yeah. Yeah, and this idea that grief is not linear, that uh, you can feel like you've you've improved and then you're just like, socked with it one day exactly mm-hmm. yeah and you know it's also about the the soothing if not completely healing power of love um definitely i think most of the story is focused on you know this protagonist coming together with her friends and her loved ones um to i won't say battle because that's sort of dramatic but you know to to work against you know the cyclical nature of trauma and it might not cure everything, but it definitely helps. And and I want this story to really encourage people to, you know, seek help from their loved ones if they've been through something like this that's, you know, coming back and eating them alive. You know, you, you have to get help and you have to stay with your friends. Grief is a, is a goblin. Well, we'll post a link to some of your webcomics at CPR.org. Emma, thanks for being with us. Congratulations. No problem. Thank you for having me. Colorado comic artist Emma Oosterhaus. She was recently awarded the prestigious Marshall Scholarship and will use it to study comics and graphic novels at the University of Dundee in Scotland. Last week, we talked about Colorado's push to get more electric vehicles on the road. The governor wants nearly a million by 2030. A listener from Aurora wrote us to say, Your story seems to gloss over the main reason I can never own one anytime soon. I don't own a house, and a fast-charging station isn't fast compared to a stop at a gas station. How can the large percentage of people who live in apartments expect to have a fully charged battery every morning? 
Well, we, we reached back out to our guest, John Volker, editor of Green Car Reports and an expert on electric cars. Your listener has a point. It's much easier if you have a dedicated parking space off the street to install a charger and usually cheaper as well. However, things are changing, particularly in California, which has been a trendsetter. A rule there now says so-called multiple dwellings, like apartment buildings, may not unreasonably deny a tenant the right to install an electric car charger at their own cost. And increasingly, we're starting to see apartment buildings put in electric car chargers as a standard fitment and sometimes even as a uh, sales lure especially to attract electric car drivers. He adds that in Palo Alto, California, the city can no longer stop someone from putting a charging station on the curbside in front of their home if they have no driveway. But he admits that can get dicey. Is that a station then for only the homeowner? So what about just charging up at a station like we do with gas? Volker says high-speed charging stations, like the ones being created by the car company Tesla, are fast, but not as quick as filling up your tank at a gas station, meaning car owners without a home charger may have to wait a while to replenish their battery for now. But that, too, is changing. Somewhat like visiting a gas station, uh, an electric car owner might go to a future fast charger, which is probably faster than today's, uh, parenthetically and spend half an hour or something to get a week's worth of mileage on the battery. Uh, It's not obviously as quick or easy as charging at home overnight, but that's the vision for uh, some people who can't get charging stations in their apartment buildings, in public parking lots, or at curbside. We always welcome listener feedback and often share it during our regular segment, Loud and Clear. Find all the ways to get in touch with us at CPR.org slash connect. Finally, today. It might not sound like it, but this song is being performed by one person, 17-year-old Jade Law. She's playing the electone, an instrument few Americans have heard of. I have two keyboards and then a foot keyboard. And so typically you do melody on top and then harmony and then bass. It looks like its ancestor, the organ, but the electone allows players to orchestrate the sounds of all kinds of instruments, meaning there are infinite sonic possibilities. With the electone, you can play almost every part, and it's... It sounds very realistic, and it's a lot of fun. For now, Jade Law is believed to be the only American playing electone. She had to go to China to learn how. But Jade's father, Dennis Law, wants to change that. He and his family endowed the University of Denver with $20 million to create the Law Institute of Arts and Technology. Its inaugural electronic music festival runs through Sunday. As part of the festival, the first electone concert in the country will be performed Saturday and Sunday by Peng Boa of China. He's a two-time international gold medal winner. He's the dean of the Modern Music Conservatory, and he's making a North American debut to play, play for us. I mean, the guy is a real performer. When he does what he does, it's just shocking. It will make you a real believer that this instrument is something special. 
Right now, an electone is very expensive because no dealers here sell it. It costs thousands just to ship one, prohibitively expensive and bureaucratic. But Law has invited Chinese manufacturers to the festival to show them a potential untapped market. He hopes through summer camps and competitions at the institute, demand will grow. All steps in correcting what Law sees as a significant cultural imbalance. Every major conservatory in China. Not only has a bona fide electronic music department, they also have an electone playing department that gives PhDs for electone players. And we don't have any instrument in America until last year. I mean, it's very, very strange. So there's some real cultural dichotomy here that we're trying to correct. So why don't you do a little bit of the Star Wars medley? The Electone. You can find more information about the institute and the festival at CPR.org. And thanks to Matthew Simonson for producing this story. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner.、Oh, I've said that again. I'm Ryan Warner. How about a third time? Okay, this is CPR News.